either one of these any good? I don't watch movies. Well, have you heard anything about either one of them? I find it's best to stay out of other people's affairs. You mean you haven't heard anybody say anything about either one of these? Nope. Well, what about these two? Well, they suck. In this lesson, I'd like to go over words and expressions you can use when you discuss movies with other people. I know everybody loves movies. I love movies. I'm sure you love movies. And there's lots of words that have to do with movies that you might not be familiar with, but they're very good to know if you want to talk about movies with your friends or whoever. No way. Yes way, Ted! Oh, yeah! Upon a time, you dress so fine. Through the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you. That's it, sport. Turn on that ice, Edo boy. Let's get this stuff a flowing and make the desert blue. Well, flow it slow. We only got the one bottle. There you are. Put that in your thoughts and see how they come out. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, then? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I'm proud of you, boy. You held them. We'll get them all back tomorrow. Just get your win back now. Just get your win back. Don't worry, we're not through here. Not by a long shot. We're only getting started. We don't need anybody in the world. You know that. What does he mean, dude? Dude ranch? <laughs> dude. <laughs> oh, no. Dude means uh, a nice guy. Dude means a regular sort of person. Well, you boys don't look like you're from this part of the country. You're lucky I'm here to see that you don't get into anything. You say you never compromise with a mystery tramp, but now you realize he's not selling any alibis as you stand the vacuum of his eyes and say do you want to make a first viewings for both movies wow this is rare for us we got to mention that for sure i was inspired by a youtuber who did a video essay on the movie and the facts surrounding the movie and i was like "Ooh, that's that's fun i've never heard of this movie the misfits just gave me a reason to watch it it was much better than i would yeah the gap between these two movies obviously i mean it's 10 years but it feels like a country Leaps mile man that black and white aesthetic to me it just sets a different tone just completely it doesn't matter what the subject matter is you know yeah
besides these movies, did you watch any of your haul? That was fun, man, the uh, movie trading company trip. I loved it. But we were going to go see a movie that day, too. We were going to go watch Death on the Nile. We were. <laughs> right. We went to the Cinemark 16 over in Grand Prairie. Grand Prairie's not my hood. I, I don't know much about the quality of theater, one as opposed to the other, you know. And so we went in, we got our tickets, we were in concession line. As soon as we got our concessions, boom, the lights go out. Everything shuts down, like right before our showing. We waited a couple minutes, see if they would flicker back on, but they never did. And the manager just came up and was like, we got nothing for you guys. Calling it a day today. <laughs> so we didn't go see Death on the Nile. We planned it. We drove both of us kind of out of our little hood. Super big bummer, man. I, I wonder how many people were halfway through a pretty good movie and just went wham. I'd be more mad about that. If we would have committed an hour to the movie and then had to go back, oh God. We were gonna watch a super cool murder mystery and let's say 45 minutes into the ending, we get cut off. It's like movie blue balls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like goodness gracious, I was right there. Movie blue balls. Movie blue balls. <laughs> All right, you ready? Yep, let's roll. Okay. Hello everyone and welcome to Spitting the Real Shit, uh, the only weekly movie podcast made exclusively by, for, and about the online Facebook group, The Real Shit. Uh, you are catching us on a very special day, because this is our 66th episode ever. And today, Ryland and myself are flexing our movie muscles and traversing rather unknown territory as we take a trip in the Wayback Machine to the 1960s. Examining the decade as any competent Zillennial film fan would, we had a double feature. We screened 1961's The Misfits, directed by John Huston, starring Marilyn Monroe and Clark Gable. And we paired that with 1969's Easy Rider, starring Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda, and Jack Nicholson. Uh, we are going to try to give an overview of that time as it relates to cinema and give a few recommendations as well as preview the upcoming bracket and unveil a new game. My name is Charlie Thompson, founder, administrator, and bracket master of The Real Shit. And joining me, as always, fellow administrator, the midnight movie maniac himself, Rylan Johnson. What's going on, man? Dude, this is going to be a fun episode. I'm a big history buff, so I learned a lot just doing some research for this one. Let's go. Let's go. We're doing something different here on this show, uh, but something that we're kind of excited about. It was actually the germ of an idea from Rylan. He said, you know, we're already yeah. in the 60s as far as the episode number. It'd be a fun little gimmick if we did like something about the 60s cinema. Hey, where did we go? Days when the rains came. So we had this idea, and we just kind of figured out how we were going to do it. And so this is what we got, guys. So I hope you enjoy this show. Forgive us if our research is not as intense as someone would maybe want to learn about the 60s, but it's kind of us telling you what we figured out in the last week or two yeah. examining this cinema, you know, so. It was cool. Yeah. We picked two movies that neither of us have seen. That's exciting. It's something fresh that both of us are catching for the first time. There's a lot of good ones in here. There's just so much going on in the world. Before we talk about the 60s, let's change gears for just a minute. Gentlemen, you have my curiosity, but now you have my attention. Uh, let's talk about the group. We have just crowned a new bracket champion with the Marvel Films bracket. The final came down to Infinity War versus Endgame. 
Infinity War came out on top with a very close margin, about three votes separated the winner from the loser. The turnout was great. I thought the champion, while inevitable, <laughs> I get it, <laughs> it was down to the wire with that match. Not every time does the winner I predict from the get-go win, so. That's the one that I would recommend to anybody who wanted to start anywhere. Bam, there it is. You don't have to watch any other movie, really. Everyone knows these people, so you, I think you're right. Just start with Infinity War and watch that in, in Endgame, and you kind of have a perfect little story. Um, I'm not surprised about the turnout either. You know, these films are the most popular thing. I'm proud to say that Infinity War has taken the eighth slot in the second ever bracket of champions. Now we are halfway to our ultimate game, which already inhabits titles such as uh, Lethal Weapon, Half-Baked, Wally, Idiocracy, 28 Days Later, and Ocean's Eleven. I can't wait to see what the latter half of the bracket of champions brings, but I know that the next entry is going to be a Nicolas Cage film. Our next bracket is the Cage Match, the Nicolas Cage film bracket. Nicolas Cage has more than enough entries to fill a great bracket and to explore his filmography. This is a great opportunity for anybody to just watch new movies. Uh, Nicolas Cage is a fantastic actor. We yeah. fully support him. I think he gets a lot of love in the group, too. I think there's a lot of people about around our age. She kind of grew up with Nicolas Cage, so it's totally our demographic and our wheelhouse. And there's so much. There's Academy Award-winning stuff, and then there's just craziness in there so front runners what do you think is going to lead the pack i'm wondering what his real dramatic roles you know versus the super high-end action the face-offs and the rock we've talked about this i've watched a lot of new nick cage lately and it's a lot of old stuff that's really fucking good and unique and con air is great and the rock is great but his acting in some of these 90s gems is making me love him even more. <laughs> I feel like the off-the-wall stuff, like uh, Vampire's Kiss, is going to mm -hmm. go far. Yeah. I feel like Leaving Las Vegas is going to go far, despite the low-key cage you get. I think Face Off has great legs in this tournament. There's so many opportunities. But yeah, so I was going to announce the preview and start date of the bracket on this show. I was going to give the preview and the start a wide berth. So I was going to preview the Nicolas Cage bracket on March 1st. And then we are going to start the bracket on March 18th. Two plus weeks for anybody who needs to catch up on these films, get them in. Uh, and get ready for this bracket, guys. I really want to see who wins this. We're going to coincide with probably the next step into the Cage episode, which we'll watch his newest film, which is the longest title ever that Charlie can remember. <laughs> the unbearable weight of massive talent. I actually did the math, and I'm synchronizing it with the final coming down on the day that that movie is released. You can experience all this Nick Cage for a month and then get that great crescendo, which I think that's what this is going to be. It's going to be just a celebration of his career, plus hopefully a good movie. He's the man, so it makes perfect sense. Hmm. That's all we got on group news, guys. But other than that, let's uh, go back in time. <laughs> It's the time of the season When love runs high uh, Yeah, let's take a dip into the 1960s. Let's end them up. 
something that we rarely ever do on this show. We're, we're more of uh, Predator guys. I had a young dad, and I'm born in 83. Uh, my dad was born, that means, you know, early 60s. So when I was young, we had a VCR. We, it was all about the new stuff coming out. He really wasn't a classic movie guy at all. So that's why these pre-mid-70s movies are such a great area for me. What about you? Funny that you mentioned that. Like, my dad was a modern movie fan when I was a child. He was still in that current, you know? He was yep. still keeping up with what the new thing was. But he'd also lived a lot of years, you know? And so he had amassed a big videotape collection. You know, you could put like three movies on one blank tape if you use the right setting. Yeah. <laughs> my father thrived on that. Like that was how we kept our movie. We had cable, uh, but we also had pay-per-view on cable. So we would just buy a movie on pay-per-view and then tape it while it was yeah. playing on cable. It was scattershot before I got yeah. a hold of it. <laughs> there was a little bit of an organization system, but not much. But they only had a few tapes, but then the tape kept growing and so they kind of lost track of their indexing you know and so i was like guys give it to me it's fine <laughs> i will make sure that this gets properly numbered and indexed and where it needs to be so i did yeah. i went through every single movie and I, each tape was numbered so oh that movie's on tape number four and tape number four is right here you know i even did like a word document with like the list. Oh, that's awesome. And my parents used it as a reference. I'm not surprised, I'm not surprised. Yeah, and so they had been doing that for a decade before I even got wind of movies. <laughs> they would buy these pay-per-view movies and then tape them just because they bought them, whether it was good or not, you know? They were a little ahead of their time. I guess the stuff that my dad would show me was a lot of like war stuff. Yeah. He was big into war movies. He was total Vietnam baby. Strong arm, I know my position is danger close. We got Charlie all over this area. I gotta have those fast movers in here now. Over. Lieutenant Dad, Coleman's dead. I know he's dead. My whole goddamn platoon is wiped out. Really, not a lot of war. I mean, there are. There's movies about war of the '60s, but they're not till later. They're not. I think that obviously it makes sense. You're going through war. You don't want to watch movies about war while you're in war. So that's why I think that's such a gray area for me. You know, pre '75, pre Jaws. Jaws is probably my first uh, old movie to love and adore. So. So you didn't do any like the Willy Wonkas or? Yeah, of, of course, Mary Poppins, Willy Wonka, some of the kids' movies of the time. But even then, I would have passed on those to watch. Anything Mighty ducks. Yeah. yeah. District five, ready. Oh man, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. Hey, oh, guys, what you nice knowing you, Goldie. Oh please, no. Fire! Were you pretty educated on the '60s when you went through your Psycho years? Well, I say Psycho. Psycho was probably you know one of my first and favorite movies to catch out of the '60s, just because it's Hitchcock. If you think you're a movie guy, you gotta watch that. So. Very sparse, you know, like, especially in cinema, from my view, the 60s and the 70s seemed to kind of run together. Where I thought a movie was in the 70s, it was actually in the 60s, you know. Oh, totally. Or vice versa. You know, it was the same kind of technology, you know, typewriters and telephones. Yeah. Seemed to kind of run longer in retrospect, the passage of time. Maybe that's what tripped me up. That aesthetic, you know, the decor of the time. It's still very 60s kind of thing. I mean, you watch these old movies and it just has that same thing on it. It just looks old. Yeah, the advancements of film, quality of film, obviously sci-fi effects and stuff affected to me like 60 to 75-ish. 77 Star Wars is kind of that big jump off point to where they could really do some cool shit with uh, special effects.
obviously that's why the 80s was just chock full of it and that's why i love it history wise you come into 1960 and they've been competing with tv and it's just they're getting their asses kicked right they don't know what to do they try to go back to the like the epics i think cleopatra in 62 which was a 37 million dollar movie in 1962 that fucking Insane. failed miserably is what changed Hollywood history, at least in the 60s, because they were like, nope, fuck this. We can't be doing this. Then, Lord Anthony, you come before me as a suppliant. If you choose to regard me as such. I do. You will therefore assume the position of a suppliant before this throne. You will kneel. I will what? On your knees. All the big stars, the biggest production sets, the fucking costume design, and I mean, just insane amount of money to make these epic three, four hour movies. And you had to deal with, you know, Elizabeth Taylor in her heyday. It's just not <laughs> worth it. <laughs> Case in point, I mean, your favorite movie, then her, that's yeah, 59. Yeah, that's exactly. 70 millimeter, you know, type of epic film, you know, and that's what they were going for. It was always successful. Lords of Arabia was incredible. My Lord, I think, I think your book is right. The desert is an ocean in which no oar is dipped. And on this ocean, the Bedou go where they please and strike where they please. This is the way the Bedou has always fought. You're famed throughout the world for fighting in this way. And this is the way you should fight now. But it's just for some reason, like when it was, I guess, well, I like a it's... pure Hollywood, you know, production. Right. It shows through like so badly. Like Cleopatra, that's totally like Americanized epic film. Yeah, you for know. sure. It's such a big pop. Like, it's a f huge explosion where everyday Americans were getting TVs in the very late 50s. I'm not, you know, a history expert, but I think that's what attributed to it was people were so into TV because it was new every week. They didn't have to wait months for a new movie they wanted to see. And more people were getting TV sets. So I think that's kind of, it has to do something with it. The 50s were booming. I would love to live in the 50s, man. Kent, the only cigarette with a Micronite filter. Kent Regular and the new King Size Kent present the story of a man, his home, and his family. Starring Robert Young in Father Knows Best. Uh, that brings up a good point about the early 60s, you know. The 50s was the time where we did have televisions and radios and just like the amount of communication was incredible. Staying in the vein of keeping up with the Joneses, you know. But it was very easy to do that because we were post-war, everybody had a bunch of money. Perfect life, nothing ever goes wrong, there's no violence, there's nothing. So that's what Hollywood had going for them, was they could aim at a more mature content. They could mm -hmm. show Marilyn Monroe's shoulders and misfits. They could, you know, have Psycho. You couldn't even touch that on TV. They could barely get away with that in the movies then. That's what cinema provided. I mean, because mm -hmm. let's be honest here. I mean, television is basically a means to advertise. Yeah. That's the whole reason TV is still on the air, because advertisers have the ability to sell their products on this communication device. You know, non-offensive, non-anything, you know, just very down the middle, salt of the earth type of stuff, you know. And so you beam that into everybody's living room. They're getting a visual of it rather than just a description of it from the radio. 
you couldn't do that on TV. So I feel like a lot of real directors, the Kubricks and these guys, they knew they could get a better story out in Hollywood. Yeah, and it's a cinema just breeds artistic and creativity, you know, whereas TV is so on a schedule. And so, like, it doesn't matter how good it is. Like, is it done so I can put it on the fucking TV, you know? <laughs> we got no time. Like, oh, we got to find your fucking artistry, huh? Well, too fucking bad. We got a show to do here, you know? Kind of lifeless on TV in the 50s. But the life you did see was just perfect. Always down the middle. In the 60s began, there were still shades of that when the decade began. I guess the first major thing was the 1960 election, where Nixon lost to John F. Kennedy. I, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, do solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of your ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. We were going from Eisenhower to Kennedy. I mean, Eisenhower was a war hero. Right. From World War II, that generation's George Washington, that amount of just patriotism. And so then he's out of office. He had two terms. Kennedy's now in very much about, you know, the people. Youngest president by a mile. I mean, right. polar opposite of Eisenhower. So he was shaking the pillars a little bit. You see it nowadays, like anytime there's a new sitting president, the whole culture kind of eventually shifts. And you can see it when you look back, you know. You know, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was still a lot of atomic fear in the early 60s. And then absolute tragedy struck whenever John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. There has been an attempt, as perhaps you know now, on the life of President Kennedy. He was wounded in an automobile driving from Dallas Airport into downtown Dallas, along with Governor Connolly of Texas. They've been taken to Parkland Hospital there, where their condition is as yet unknown. Of course, history buffs know all about the JFK assassination. I don't want to get into it here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was conspiracy. It was... People not knowing the truth. People think they're being lied to. Just mass confusion, you know, and then Vietnam War starting in the 60s with Johnson behind the wheel as far as strategy. With that and the mistrust of the government, the war happening and their decisions on that, it bred this whole counterculture in the middle of the 60s. Educated kids were coming forward and saying, this, is, this isn't cool, man. No, I do mind. Uh, the dude minds. This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. Why are you sending our guys to war? Like, why did you kill the president? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And you can sit through cinema, you know? To where the big titles in the early part of the 60s. I mean, you had West Side Story. You had The Parent Trap. Like, whatever happened to Baby Jane. You had The Miracle Worker. Everyone, please! Miss Sullivan, you're here only as a paid teacher, nothing more. I can't unteach us six years of pity if you can't stand up to one tantrum. Oh, Stonewall, indeed. Sprinkled in there is also To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. It's people talking about these issues, you know, and seeing it for, through a child's eyes is one of the best ways to convey that story. She tempted a Negro. She was white, and she tempted a Negro. She did something that in our society is unspeakable. She kissed a black man, not an old uncle, but a strong, young Negro man. No code mattered to her before she broke it. But it came crashing down on her afterwards. You still have those older stars, 
that were still kind of in their later years. Whatever happened to Baby Jane, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, they're clearly in their grandma stage, you know. What do you want this time? Who was on the telephone? None of your business. What were you ringing for? I'm hungry, Jane. Well, of course you're hungry. You didn't eat your dinner. That's why you're hungry. But you forgot my breakfast. I didn't forget your breakfast. I didn't bring your breakfast because you didn't eat your dinner. Early 60s also gave birth to James Bond, which we talked about a month and a half ago. My boy Bond, baby. It's been, it's still going. That's what's cool is it spawned some espionage of the time, which during the Cold War and all the stuff that's going on. So fucking kicking ass today. So how cool is that? And also, I mean, you got to talk about, you know, the, the landing of the moon, the space race. That's what attributed to one of my favorite genres exploding. In 68, 2001, Space Odyssey, uh, you also had Planet of the Apes. They're both these obviously different films, but, you know, space and sci-fi movies have been around. Some of the advancements in special effects, especially in, in Space Odyssey, there's some epic sci-fi movies in there based on mm -hmm. the space race and, and, and the moon landing and everybody being excited about space travel, like actual space yeah. travel. Ten fifteen year thing, man. Where we went just to putting things in space, to putting people in space. Imagine how yeah. trippy that was. The big monsters of the fifties, the aliens that come invade us. Like now we can get out there into space. That that's scary. That's what attributed to the aliens and the the Star Wars movies, where it's more of a fantastical world that you go to. It's so cool. Yeah, I never even thought about it that way. I always looked at the political side of the space mm -hmm. race, but the realization of space. Yeah, yeah. It's not a movie thing anymore. It's like we're actually get up there, a spark of originality, and people run into writing stories and stuff like that, which is exciting. That was part of it, too, was in 1960 or 61. If I'm wrong, please somebody correct me in the comments, <laughs> where Kennedy made a statement saying that before the end of this decade, we will put a man on the moon. Yeah. I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. And then he made that statement, you know, everybody was elated. Oh, yeah. It take 10 years. But then after his assassination, there was this sense of, we got to make Jack proud, you know? <laughs> yeah. We got to do this one for him. And so they worked even harder to reach yeah. that date. And they did, like July of 1969. Six months you know, to spare, baby. Let's go. <laughs> I mean, how great was this man? You know, he, yeah. he, he helped put us in space. And he, he saved us from atomic winter. You know, then they fucking murder his ass. I mean, allegedly. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. So yeah, so the beginning of the decade was still kind of sing-songy, dancey, kind of musical stuff, you know. My Fair Lady in 64, they were working on the epics. But then as the middle of the decade starts and all the turmoil starts to just compound upon itself, you, st you start seeing these conversations 
starting to pop up in major cinema through the Vietnam War and civil rights and you know all these things that are major issues in America are starting to bleed into cinema especially with titles like you know guess who's coming to dinner who's afraid of Virginia Woolf you're a monster you are I'm loud and I'm vulgar and I wear the pants in the house because somebody's got to but I am not a monster I'm not Bonnie and Clyde was a huge one. Like the youth of that era saying that we need to be heard, you know? It was a classic story that was painted with counterculture. Like Alfie is a great exploration of just, you know, free love and all that kind of stuff, you know? And that's your boy, Michael Caine and Alfie. Yeah, Michael Caine, man. One of the bigger ones was The Graduate, talking about more of the counterculture, the, the nihilistic view of youth in that time. I got a single rule. That's fine. But there's one thing, the desk clerks seem to be a little bit suspicious. Now, I don't know what the policy is. Well, do you want to go up first? Yes, I think that would be good. I'll be up in five minutes. Oh, goodbye then. Benjamin. Yes. Isn't there something you want to tell me? To tell you? Yes. Well, I want you to know how much I appreciate this. Really. The number. What? The room number, Benjamin. I think you ought to tell me that. Oh, you're absolutely right end of the decade, we had massive tragedy. We thought we were going to have another Kennedy in the White House, but then he was struck down. And in the same year, Martin Luther King was struck down. There's this huge sadness. Like, can you imagine right, the president now being assassinated? I know the weight of it in 1960 was probably equal to it now, but if you didn't live through it, because I remember everyone I knew when the JFK movie came out in the, in the early 90s, they were all talking about how they vividly remember that day. And they were little kids. My dad was a tiny kid. His brothers and sisters that were a little older were still in grade school and remember it vividly because it was just such an impactful thing. I can't imagine. Uh, Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, Midnight Cowboy, like Rosemary's Baby. These are all meta commentaries on the time. Easy Rider. We, I know we're <laughs> going to talk about it, but that's a huge send off to the decade, in my opinion. And it kicked off more of a, a filmmaker spirit near the end, where as mm -hmm. the beginning of the 60s, it was very star based. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. The film is called It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. It was released by United Artists in 1963. Anybody who ever made an audience laugh is in it. From silent screen legend Buster Keaton to the Three Stooges, Jonathan Winters, Milton Berle, Sid Caesar, Carl Reiner, and that's but the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's also Jimmy Durante, there's Jack Benny, Don Knotts, Mickey Rooney, and so many more, including some headliners not necessarily associated with comedy, such as Ethel Merman and Peter Falk. And in another calculated piece of casting, the performer who receives first billing and as the real hub of the story, is not a comic at all. But instead, he's the most respected dramatic actor of his time, the great Spencer Tracy. If Marilyn Monroe was in that movie, or if you know Rock Hudson was in this movie, it would make money. Where near the end of the 60s, it was more about the person that was trying to tell the story through the lens. Yeah, yeah. their director's power grew in the 60s, and then just, I think it took off after that. I think Spielberg and Lucas kind of saved the powerful director name. And the filmmaker's film thrived in the 70s, mm -hmm. but I think it was really, it was really helped spawn near the end of the 60s, in my opinion. Yeah. And then the receipts started coming in based on that. So it was like, ooh, there's a new Kubrick film. Ooh, there's a new Arthur Penn film. Yeah. Like, ooh, there's a new Mike Nichols film. I mean, say what you want, but there's, ooh, there's a new Polanski film out there. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. they, they would go and see it. What have you done to it? What have you done to its eyes? He has his father's eyes. 
You know, there's a new Woody Allen film. You know, you don't want to bring it up, but that's what drew people to the theater. Was, and that's how cinema always survived. It being a place where artistry was grown, you know. The fact that the film was becoming more of an art form was great. And I thought it was great to see over time. That's what I think the end of the 60s helped do was spark these younger directors that they didn't trust yet. That's literally the pamphlet history that you get from Ryan and myself about the 60s. We watched a couple of movies, read a couple of articles. We kind of wanted to impart that plus our own personal history of that decade onto you guys. But in honor of this theme of the 60s, we are going to unveil a brand new game on the show. You ready to play a fun game, Ryan? Always. Let's play a game, baby. We are doing a brand new game. I mean, it's not really brand new. It's, it's a game that people know. It's called Two Truths, One Lie. We're going to give three options for something, and you have to tell which ones are true and which one is a lie. But this time, we're putting a little spin on it, and we're saying Two Truths, One Lie. The two are going to be 60s films, mm-hmm. and the one is going to be a movie from a different decade and see if we can stump each other. Yeah. So do you want to go first? Yeah, let's roll. I'm ready to go. All right, I'm going to go Thunderball, Hang 'em High, The Blob. You got a Western in there. You got some Bond action in there. Uh, I'm going to say Thunderball is the non-60s movie. Mm. Uh. 1968, Clint Eastwood's Hang 'em High, Thunderball, the third installment of the Bond franchise. It's 1965. And the classic monster movie, The Blob, is 1958. No. I thought... The Blob was a shoe-in for 60s film. <laughs> so my first one. Here we go. The Alamo. Patton. The Hustler. I'm pretty sure The Hustler is in the 60s. Then you got Patton, which is about like World War II. But I think Patton's earlier, so I'm going to go with Patton. Mm. It came out in 1970. Yeah, I watched The Hustler this year for the first time. I love The Color of Money. Big Tom C fan over here. So I had to watch it this year, and I watched it, and it was really good. That's one that my dad showed me was The Hustler. All right, I'm ready for your next one. All right, we've got Fahrenheit 451, The Birds, Enter the Dragon. Oh, man. So I know The Birds is a 60s film. Enter the Dragon. God. I'm going to say Enter the Dragon. Not a Bruce Lee film. to throw you <laughs> off because, you know, he's very late 60s, early 70s. I was like, hmm, I might get him. All right. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Cool Hand Luke. Billy Jack. The computer wore tennis shoes. Damn it. We did Billy Jack. I know this because I know Cool Hand Luke's in the 60s because I'm a big fan. Billy Jack, I remember, was like 70s exploitation, right? I don't know, is it? I think think it was. So I'm going with the computer one because I've never heard of it. It's got to be in the 50s or something. Actually, Billy Jack is the... Damn it, you sneaky bitch. (laughs) All right, you ready? All right, let's go. Giant. Spartacus. Fistful of dollars. 
see. I'm going to say Fistful of Dollars is a 60s film. Could be. <laughs> Spartacus. Uh, God. I'm going to say Giant. Felt like I had to give you kind of a softball out of one of them because I think I'd be bad at this. But that's the classic 50s James Dean. It's just movies in the 50s, man. They're just hard for me to go. I really would like to watch that again. Yeah. All right. Here <laughs> All we right, go. What, what do you got for me? What do you got? Barbarella. Peter Pan. Lolita. Is that the animated one? Oh, that's got to be pre-60. I feel like, oh, no. Barbarella or... All right. I think the, the 60s movies are Barbarella and Lolita. Yeah! Nineteen fifty-three. I thought the animated one might have even been in the forties. That style of animation was timeless for a while. That was a good one. <laughs> All right, last one. I've got Inspector Clouseau, Attack of the Fifty-Foot Woman, Doctor Doolittle. I got two goofballs in there, bro. Oh, Clouseau, Fifty-Foot Woman. I say Fifty-Foot Woman is the seventies film. It was in 58, but you got it right. <laughs> you know, I've never actually seen that one. Me either. Uh, okay, last one. Last one for the game. I'm going to go with... The Producers. For a few dollars more. THX 1138. THX. Yes, it was 1971. Ah! Yes. Uh, have you ever seen well, there you THX go, man. 1138? I have. I've, I've actually seen that once. It's a mind trip, bro. I've always been fascinated. I've always wanted to watch yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's, it just doesn't feel like Lucas, really, to be honest. I couldn't even tell you much about it, to be honest, but I did watch it once. So, yeah, so that's a brand new game. I enjoyed playing that game. Yeah, that was good. Play. I'm surprised I did as well at it as I could because you got a good chance of at least getting one out of three, but that was good. Thank you. You are entirely welcome. And now, let us all go to my house for a little sponge cake and a little wine and, and shit. But after that, we got two movies that we watched this week to prepare for this 1960s double feature. And we're going to talk about them tonight. 1969's Easy Rider and 1961's The Misfits. met me a girl sweet enough to eat fine looking woman how'd he do i have an empty house out in the country just beyond holyville it's all yours if you want some peace and quiet before you go back gee goes on forever there's no better place to be you couldn't find better company either you're a real beautiful woman you think you could break away from this paradise long enough to do a little mustanging Horses? We'd have to pick up another man. Well, better than wages, ain't it? Well, anything's better than wages. It's like a dream. Well, we'll never see this again in history, you know. You kill him? Contact!
is a movie that I heard about and I was intrigued by, basically because of why it was made. Marilyn Monroe starring Vehicle that was written by Arthur Miller. Of course, you know, famous playwright. He did View from the Bridge, Death of a Salesman, The Crucible. Because I lie and sign myself to lies! Because I am not worth the dust on the feet of them you have hanged. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! But this is actually one of the only movies, the only screenplay that he's ever written. And it was because he was married to Marilyn Monroe at the time. That's found out to be just a fascinating Yeah, Yeah. it's really sad because he's trying to pull her out of this depression she's in. This is a year before she passes away. And he kind of wrote this role for his wife who's just in despair. Your wife's the most mega famous person in the world. And no one really knows, you know, what she's going through but you. You were worried about me. How sweet. Just want to keep you all in one pretty piece. He wrote this for her. This is really my first introduction to Marilyn Monroe. I thought her acting was pretty good. You don't hear that about her. You, you hear she was an icon. She was a sex symbol. She was all these things. Nobody ever says she was an amazing actress. I've known of uh, so-called happily married couples. One time, the wife was in the hospital to have the baby, and the husband was calling me up. I mean, he was calling me they're still supposed to be happily married but she really is good i think she gets a bad rap just because of her bringings and and just being a a playboy thing and especially of the 50s and 60s when it was just women were you know just objects objects. mr treehorn treats objects like women man there's a lot of mixed reviews about it because she has done better things i'm not putting her down at all i'm not saying she didn't have the wear all to do it you know it's got some dark you know ties to it and there's some actual acting involved and i think she does really well so i just thought it was just a, an incredible experiment it's basically a movie about marilyn monroe starring marilyn monroe mm-hmm. written by her then husband who's yeah. also a famous playwright arthur miller and you're like yeah. i don't care what that's about whatever they created i want to watch it and apparently is it john huston or houston uh houston it's directed by john houston who mm-hmm. i'm not very familiar with but when you look at his career you've got Bomi dick and asphalt jungle the maltese falcon the african queen every mm-hmm. single thing he's done was nominated for best picture pretty much even all the way up to prizzy's honor in 1985 with jack nicholson so his career spanned i mean god maltese falcon was in 41 man He's got 75 Oscar nominations, dude. (laughs) Academy Awards night is quite rightly an occasion for ladies and gentlemen celebrated for their beauty, their wit, their talent. I've attended these nights whenever I was in Hollywood for a fair number of years. I have listened to your applause, your ovations. I've even seen you rise to your feet in an act of homage. And then an hour later, I've heard you declare the whole occasion to have been a dismal bore. Yeah. Talking about a career, this guy's a heavy hitter, bro. He did a lot of, lot of stuff that deserves credit, so. Well, the two that I knew that he did before we did our research mm-hmm. was he did uh, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre with yep. uh, Humphrey Bogart. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. And then he also did Under the Volcano with um, Albert Finney, who won an Oscar for his performance. It's about a drunk guy who just walks around Mexico. And that's the whole movie. I say, I say, what's the matter here? 
Nothing. Absolutely all right. All right? You were lying down in the middle of the road. All right, just the same. Thank you very much. It's fantastic. Albert Finney just blows you away with his performance. As a matter of fact, fun Cage fact, Nicolas Cage based his performance in Leaving Las Vegas from Under the Volcano. Oh, wow. That's a deep yeah. cut right there. <laughs> I got facts, kid. I got facts. Maybe you shouldn't drink so much. Maybe I shouldn't breathe so much, Terry. Ha <laughs> ha! Very well-regarded director. For him to be helming this, for it to be written by Arthur Miller, starring Melon Monroe, and not to mention Clark Gable and Montgomery Clift are both in this movie. Movie stars don't look like Clark Gable anymore, you know? Like, I know he's got the mustache and the part and the hair. And he's a legend, but you know he's only 59 years old in this movie? Where shall I go? What shall I do? Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Interesting. No, I didn't know that. He looks at least 69, if not 75. He's got his look still. <laughs> he's got his hair, but he's just so worn and weathered. And obviously he's playing a, a worn, weathered old cowboy. So, I mean, great casting. But it just when it said 59, because this is obviously another historical fact about this movie was him and Marilyn died right after this. This was their last showing. One of the most famous stars in Hollywood history is dead at 36. Marilyn Monroe was found dead in bed under circumstances that were in tragic contrast to her glamorous career as a comic talent. Hollywood bids farewell to Clark Gable. Director Frank Capra and Keenan Wynn are among his friends and colleagues attending the dignified military rites. James Stewart was one of the pallbearers. Clark Gable, though, I was like, man, he was only 59 years old. That's not that old. Because he's good looking, but he's awkward looking kind of, you know? Like, just the movie star face. It's just... It's unique looking. I'm sure he was much more dashing and good looking in his early age, but I don't know. He just had this cool look to him. I was like, man, that's like a true Hollywood guy right there. He can still pull Minnow Monroe in his 60s, you know. You uh, sure made a big impression on my friend here. And I can see why. And then this Montgomery Cliff guy, which I'm new to, looked just like Joe Pesci. <laughs> no, not, not, not Montgomery Cliff. The other guy. I'm sorry. The guy with the ball cap. Yeah. Eli Wallach or Eli Wallach, or, man. Yeah. Uh, he I mean, was good, the bad, ugly. And ugly. In his early age, looks just like Joe Pesci, man. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. <laughs> you motherfucker. I almost had him. I almost had him. <laughs> I always remember Eli Wallach from a movie called Tough Guys. Mm-hmm. with Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster. Do you remember this movie? No. Uh-uh. Yeah, it's about these two like convicts who were released from prison after they did their time, you know? Yeah. And they're trying to acclimate themselves into like daily life. And it's played by Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, who are, you know, still like those big, brawly, you know, dudes from back in their heyday. And then Eli Wallach was like the bad guy. Kiss my ass, you Blonsky! Who's your Blonsky? Seeing him now, it's like, it's so weird. This little rat-faced dude. But I think like the casting is almost perfect. Each of these people are kind of down and out. And the most poignant thing to me was these old cowboys that just didn't want to go work for a wage. Like that was a death sentence to them. And now that's only people work for it was wages, unless you're a rancher or a farmer. You might be a contractor of some sorts, but you're still working for some type of wage. You you know, you don't just go freehand work or work for the day and every job's different and all that shit that they those cowboys were used to. It's kind of a commentary on that, you know, the true definition of the cowboy. Yeah. You know, kind of fading. What do you expect to get out of it? I mean, uh, 15 horses. I mean, like, if there was a thousand or more. But just going all the way up there for 15, it kind of hits me sideways. I don't know. 
Better than wages, ain't it? And then also, I, I chose this movie because of the older Clark Gable, of kind of the, yeah. the passing of the torch, you know? Showing who was still bringing in box office. That was still Clark Gable. That was still Montgomery Clift. That was still very much Marilyn Monroe, you know? Montgomery Clift, that was another thing where he was that hot stud and he was aging in Hollywood. And, you know, his character reflects that as, as well. The casting for this is, is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's like you took people that were dealing with that shit in real life and, and cast them in a movie, which does happen sometimes, but not a lot. All these little fun facts. Like it it intrigued me so bad. I reached out to Ryland. I was like, if we're doing this 60s, I want to do this one. I want to do this mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. Uh, movie starts out a woman who's finalizing her divorce in Nevada, assuming that that's where her previous husband and her fleetingly got married. And um, I, I assume and she, she like eloped in Reno or some shit. <laughs> going back to the whole Arthur Miller aspect. I mean, this is literally like, I guess, what Arthur Miller saw because she went straight from Joe DiMaggio to Arthur Miller. Miss Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio are presently having differences which they have brought about a separation. Miss Monroe has decided to file an action for divorce in Southern California. I guess what Arthur Miller saw was the breakoff of the whole relationship, you know, the, right. the very end of it. That's kind of his way of stating that, that this is coming from his perspective. You know, she's confused. She's not in a good spot. I'm not sure if you recognize this, but the guy that she divorced was the guy who ran the evil TV station in UHF. Oh, no. no. Weird Al's UHF. Weird Al's UHF, yeah. Hold on, you don't understand. I was... No, you don't understand how serious a crime this is. I think you just better clear out your desk and get out. You're through, mister. But I don't work here. Same guy, same guy. So she finalizes her divorce. She has her friend with her named Isabel. The car broke down at their house, and so they needed a ride to the courthouse, some local garage that had a, that had a courtesy car. We're introduced to a guy named Guido, or I want to say it's Guido, right? That's how it's, you say his name. It's like Guido, isn't it? Like an Italian guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah Guido. It makes sense, you know? <laughs> he looks like Joe Pesci. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. This guy Guido, he gets one look at Marilyn Monroe, and he just falls in love with her. He takes him to the courthouse. He's acting like a gentleman the entire time, totally trying to spit game when he can. <laughs> they decide they want to celebrate, go to the casino and have a couple drinks. While they're there, they just, by happenstance, see Guido again, but he's with his mm-hmm. friend Gay, who's played by Clark Gable. That's the beginning of this whole narrative. These four people meeting and then just becoming friendly. Marilyn's almost instantly attracted to Gay because he's just, he's Clark Gable. He's older, he's dashing good looking, he's got that weathered skin, he's wearing the cowboy hat. I mean, it's kind of the premise of this movie. It's all the men around Marilyn Monroe are in love with her. How about the landlord? Move over, boy, huh? Just watch out for those pretty little feet there. Don't worry, she knows how to get out of the way. Let's go. There's always that undercurrent motivation why you're even doing this. Feels like they're doing this just to impress her. Just to get an audience with her, to get close to her, to try and make a move on her. Her friend Isabel, she's not even getting the time of day. I mean, she's being, she's being <laughs> friendly, you know, and she's being a facilitator. Right. But really, all eyes are on Meryl. It's I mean, obvious. Yeah. When they get back to the house and they all start getting loose, they start drinking some fucking whiskey. And I, I've, never, this, I've never really watched a full-length movie with her, and she's just captivating. They've got Marilyn in this, like, kind of modern, very sleek shirt. It just stands out. They get a little loose and start doing a little dancing. You know, that's half the it's reason why some of the guys wanted to come see this movie. Yeah, scandalous, you know. It's like, you know, drunk Marilyn Monroe. Like, why mm-hmm. wouldn't you want to watch that? Yeah. It becomes very clear that, like you said, Gay and Rosalind, who's Monroe's character. That's a good name, Rosalind. They're automatically attracted to each other. Right. So Guido and Isabel, they end up 
leaving. Rosalind and Gay, they, they say they're going to try and fix up the house. But while they're there, they have this love affair, spending time with each other every day, uh, making love, all that kind of stuff. The second act kicks in where Isabella and Guido return. They want to go into town and see the rodeo. And they're thinking about doing some Mustanging. Uh, Before that, you do realize that Rosalind and Gay, they butt heads against things. Rosalind's a very soft-hearted person. She's in a bad place. She's overly dramatic at times. And he's mm -hmm. this old cowboy. He's like, God, you're gorgeous, but you don't think of things, you know, the way I do. Well, you go on inside now and stop being silly. I'm not being silly. You don't respect what I feel. And I don't care about the lettuce. Well, I care about it. And how about having some respect for me? And he's holding a lot back. He's so infatuated in the beginning that she says some things and does some things that go against everything he thinks. But he's just so enamored with her, you know. That's at least what I noticed. He was giving and giving and giving, and she just keeps taking from these guys. She keeps pushing the envelope with the way of their life and all that. And they're hanging on so damn tight, and she's kind of that Trojan horse into that world. And it just disrupts all the characters, you know, complete strangers in the beginning of the movie. But they know that they want to spend more time with each other. Oh, totally. And, and so when the foursome get back together... They make plans to go into town and see the rodeo. Yeah. And then this is where Montgomery Cliff's character comes into play. They kind of find him in a phone booth. Hello, Ma. This purse. Yeah, I'm okay. No, I was in Colorado. I'm in Nevada now. Just won me a bull riding. I've never seen this guy act, but right off the bat, I was like, this guy can act. He has no money, but he's just a bull rider. You know, he just has yeah. those thoughts. Like you said, the free cowboy, you know, mm -hmm. he exudes that. He doesn't want to work for wages either. You know, he knows he's too old to be in the rodeo, but he's going to still go risk his life in the rodeo just to make some money. He has no money. He's broke as shit. And that's another sign of the times of like, these guys just can't cowboy every day like they used to. Very similar in a lot of ways. And then you get kind of the first action sequence where Purse, he gets into the, into the rodeo. You get to see this great footage of the rodeo. I thought it was really impressive the way they cut it and edited it for 61. I mean, that was pretty fucking cool. Oh, yeah. But also the narrative shows that whenever Rosalind sees what's going on at the rodeo and sees how people are getting hurt, she's really affected by it. And it really shakes her up. And she just does not want these people to do this anymore. And she's very vocal about yeah. it. Yeah. Very emotional. I was going to say, she's almost manic in that and emotional. And I could tell, like, maybe Marilyn's personal life was affecting her acting quite a bit. Like, that was the one scene where I was like, eh. Take the money. We, we won in the bar. You have to win it. Come on, take it. It's over a hundred dollars. You don't have to go back in there. I, I, I'm pretty good riding bulls. I want you to watch me, Rosalind. But why are you doing it? Once you learn a little bit more research about the film, she was notoriously terrible. Wouldn't show up on time. Oh, yeah. Was fucked up all the time. Just hate to say just, you know, a Hollywood star fading fast. Press mm -hmm. conferences after the movie she would even show up for. Isn't that insane? I talk about like, a rock star lifestyle, man. You see a, a true form of character for Rosalind after the rodeo. You know something's going to happen because they've been talking about capturing these Mustangs. Something's going to happen. And then you also get more character development from the other men trying to stake their claim with Rosalind. In the beginning, I thought that Rosalind was really going to go for purse. Like she was listening to everything that he was saying and like smiling and all that kind of stuff. But then after the rodeo, she was done with him. And then, you know, him unloading all of his shit on her while he was laying down, talking about his mother and all that kind of stuff. But I said to her, Ma, look, you better get a paper from this Mr. Blackwell because I'm the oldest and you know Papa wanted me to have this ranch. And then we get this crazy scene where Clark Gable comes out just pissed drunk. 
<laughs> and he's looking for his kids. He says, my kids came. You know, I saw them. I, I want to introduce you to them. Yeah. Talking to Rosalind. Looking for them. They're not there. And then yeah, so yeah. he goes right back outside again. And he just has this wall-eyed fit. Gerard, I know you hear me. Where you gone to? I told you to be right back. You come here now. Don't worry, mister. You'll probably find him at home. Gerard! You come here now! I know you hear me! Help me! I know you hear me! You come here now! He's so sad and so drunk. It's kind of like embarrassing, you know? He's just become this like super lonely, sad old cowboy. Probably made it up. I don't even think his kids were there, right? He was just drunk and making shit up is what I thought. No? That's a good question. I don't know. You know, I thought he was just too lit in the game and he misses his kids and he and he just wanted, I don't know. I, that, was, that was a weird scene. And then Guido shows his stripes after Gay's drunken tirade where he's driving everybody home. He's talking to Roslyn. He's trying to say that he's the best guy for her. Yeah. Give me a chance. Give me a chance. But at the same time, he's also pissed drunk driving 90 down a windy <laughs> highway. Yeah. Um, and scaring the shit out of Rosalind. She'll say whatever the fuck she needs to say. Now, the difference is I see you. You're the first one I ever really saw. Please, Peter, don't kill us. How do you get to know somebody, kid? I can't make a landing and I can't get up to God either. Help me. I never said help me in my life. It showed his true colors of that scene. He's probably the worst out of all of them. He knows he doesn't stand a chance against these cowboys because, you know, he even talks about, <laughs> you know, tries to build himself up. Oh, I was in the war and I flew planes. and right. He didn't stand a chance. <laughs> he didn't. I mean, come on, dude. It's Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. That brings up a good question. Like, if we're trying to put a little art on reality, which one do you think represents Arthur Miller? Which character? It's that's that's really hard to pinpoint because figuring out what he wrote about this story and did he inject mm -hmm. himself as one of those guys or is he all of those yeah. guys? I think he's more all of them because mm -hmm. he's older than Marilyn, correct? Marilyn never dated a guy her age. She was always in their older guys. So maybe he was just a bit and piece of each character. That makes more sense to me. I mean, Pierce is just a younger version of gay, really. And then Guido could just be the guy he thinks he is. He's not you know, worthy of Marilyn Manson. Or Mar Marilyn Manson. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, I love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's definitely not as cool as Joe DiMaggio. I didn't know who uh, Arthur Miller was before this, so. Hey, but this just proves it to you, boys. If you got nothing but the brain, you can still get the hot chick, man. Yeah. If you're that talented artistically, Come on, man. Right. The, the ultimate babes like artists too. You know what I mean? Like you ain't got to go the macho route. Anyways, drive them all back to the, the, the dilapidated. I guess we haven't talked about the house yet. Yeah. The house is like a, it, it's Guido's house mm -hmm. that he had with his wife, but it was kind of half finished. Needs and a lot so of work. So it's a fixer upper, if you will. But that's kind of home base for everybody. Yeah. And so that's where they end up. They don't really have a vision of what they're doing. I think that's why Rosalind was gravitated towards this group because they're all lost. The Like the half-built house. Needing money for rodeo entry, you know. Yep, yep. Uh, drinking whiskey. They're not just drinking, you know. They're drinking fucking whiskey, dude. And when they drink, they drink. Yeah, all these flaws that are just glaring. They all kind of sleep it off. They wake up the next morning. It's time to go mustanging, which is an activity that I didn't realize was a thing. And so basically the third act is the entire mustanging 
yeah, trip, yeah. which it's, was much more of an action scene than I was expecting. Absolutely. Right? But this man. is real fucking horses. The actors are right there in it. It's notorious that Clark Gable was like in this 107 degree heat in the Nevada desert doing all this work. And people are like, that's what fucking killed him. <laughs> he died <laughs> two days after shooting. Yeah. Kind of makes sense to me. I mean, he was in this super <laughs> like stressful physical I'm thinking he's doing this right at the end of his days. If you're a 60-year-old Clark Gable in the hot sun fucking wrestling Mustangs, uh, you might have a heart attack and die. The activity itself was was kind of cool, like, yeah. just to see it go down. That's what takes up a lot of the screen time in the third yeah, act. Yeah, they got to set it up. The plane's got to scoop them down a certain valley, and then they got to get in there, and they got to, you know, lasso these things. Oh, that lousy car gas. All right, try it again. Contact! And so they finally are able to tag the ones that they needed to tag. They thought 15, but I guess they only found five. They're wrapping things up, but then Rosalind came with them, and she's just getting so emotional because she finds out what they're going to do with the horses, which is they're going to sell them to the dealer, and the dealer is eventually going to slaughter them and turn them into cat food and dog food. Well, there's no need to look at me that way. Now you're looking at me like I was a stranger. I thought they were used for riding or for... Well, sure, they used to be. Well, like Christmas presents for kids because they're small horses, you see. Kids love them for Christmas. But kids ride motor scooters now. My one quarrel, though, is I'm like, boys, why'd you bring her along? You knew she was going to cause some shit. <laughs> Come on, gay. <laughs> we're going to make some money, and I'll be back yeah. with the money. The action sequences were really impressive. Yeah. Like, the shots that they got were impressive. Oh, for sure. You know, there's nothing like that. For 61, I was, like, pretty impressed. Give them props for that. So then there's this huge argument where... It comes down to the big question of should they do this, should they not do this? Clark Gable's sticking to his guns, but Montgomery Clift ends up flipping on everybody, and he goes around to the different horses that are kind of pinned down, and he sets them free. Yeah. Of course, that puts a huge smile on Marilyn's face. He keeps going around, but then Clark Gable, he explains himself later, but his first action is to just grab a Mustang by the rope that it has left. <laughs> No, fuck that. And just gets really mad and like goes and wrestles a Mustang just to show her that he doesn't need her money and he can do this job and he can still make a non-wage kind of gig. I don't know. And then Marilyn has this uber fit. Like she runs out into this open space and just screams her head off. having a tantrum about right. what's going on she's letting everybody know that she does not like this situation yeah, she, she likes the animals she gets so worked up she ends up having to lay down and at the last minute clark gable he grabs the rope and he decides that he's going to tame this horse <laughs> it took some doing but he did it yeah. which is probably yeah. the most impressive action sequence in the movie oh, for sure you can see it's Clark Gable. Yeah. He might have been pulled by a truck, but he was still being pulled across yeah. the ground. I heard he got pulled like 400 yards that day, and they're just like, wait, what? The motherfucker's 60, bro. <laughs> exactly. But then the really impressive part is that Clark Gable, like, yes. he gets that Mustang, and he gets her to, like, just stop. Stop bucking. Yep. Stop resisting. Yeah. And he does it all on his own. And I thought that was impressive I, as fuck. I think that he's also trying to show, you know, Rosalind, like, I tamed this wild horse. We can be together and I can tame things. I can, I don't know. What in the hell do you catch them for? 
don't want nobody making up my mind for me, that's all. Damn them all. I changed it. Changed it all around. Smeared it all over with blood. I'm finished with it. That was in the back of my brain as well. At the time, you know, she's at this crossroads. Which dude does she pick? Does she pick the dude that just helped her free these horses? Or Gay, who literally just tamed a horse in front of her. She decides that she's going to let Gay drive her back to the house. Yeah. And it's just them still trying to make ends meet. They've been through some shit and they're still together. There's that infamous kind of strange last moment where they're kind of holding each other in the car and they don't know how to get home. And he says, that's the North star. Follow that. It'll take us right home. Yeah. Which is ominous. And considering the fact that both of those people died within a year and a half, kind of confusing at the time, but it's ominous now. How do you find your way back in the dark? Just head for that big star straight on. The highway is under it. It'll take us right home. There was no mention of a North Star at any point. Like, he was just a badass. He just knows how to get home. And so that's The Misfits, guys. Uh, 1961, I thought it was a great examination of not only current time that it was in, but also a commentary on fame and what you do with fame, and and more importantly, a story of decision-making getting skewed in the presence of beauty. Like, a pretty girl comes along, this rugged-ass dude will just change. Yeah. You know, he'll change everything for beauty, or the the belief that this is the perfect woman. It's He's, shallow, yeah, totally. Yeah, at the very end, you couldn't even get, get him to stop. She got a long way, but she couldn't change his core values. It says a lot about what Arthur Miller thought of their relationship. Maybe it's a commentary on the DiMaggio relationship. He wasn't that guy, but that's the guy that she was gravitating towards. And you see a little bit of that in this, I think. It's slow and boring at times, but at the same time, if you look into the film and look who wrote it, who was involved, I think the casting is almost perfect. Like, hey, distraught, hot of the time lady that's been through a lot of shit with Marilyn Monroe. They found the old cowboy who just called the old actor, you know, Clark Gable. I'm glad I did a little research beforehand because if I would have watched it without it, what's what scares me about pre-75 movies is just (laughs) I get it. They get a point across, but there's no bing, bang, bam. There's no sexiness to these sometimes. Marilyn Monroe's a little baddie. Well, well, of course, she is. Shorty a little baddie. She my little bull thing. And shorty got the fatty. You know what sexy is to me? It's John claude Van Damme jumping on a dirt bike and shooting a car that explodes. <laughs> right. Much higher entertainment value. Yeah. You know, I know that I'm looking at these through a certain lens, but I'm so happy that I'm watching them now later in life because I'm appreciating the hell out of them because this is a really, really well done movie. It, it does show the time of, of 61. I'm glad you picked us this and then Easy Rider because they're polar opposites. It's so cool. Let's rate this movie. And yeah, then yeah, we'll we got to rate this. Movie. You hit the nail on the head when you said if you don't know the back end of this movie, it might not have near as much value for you because it is just kind of a jumbled mess. It's a bunch of lost souls. It's a great exploration of, you know, the human experience. But if you're not looking at that and if you're just trying to see a Clark Gable film, it's kind of yep. middle of the road. But now that I have this knowledge and I do appreciate it, I think it will get a few points. Uh, so overall, I would give this movie like a 6.4. It's above average. Probably won't watch it again. An experiment, really. Yep. And it's, it's a movie that you'll never be able to make again. We're pretty close. I gave it a 6.8. 
you know me, I'm a big cinematography guy, uh, music in, in movies. It lacked that. It, it's black and white. I always have a hard time with black and white movies. There's tons of symbolism in it and things that you mm-hmm. on. And I think you did a great job of picking an early 60 movie that had the passing of the torch of these people because mm-hmm. none of them were really around in the 70s. Like James Dean and Marilyn Monroe and Clark Gable, they were all dead by 70. Like some of it was young, but that's just how it was. And I feel like this is a movie that gives you a couple of brownie points in that. Like if you're ever at some gathering and they bring up Marilyn yeah. Monroe. Yeah, I've seen the Misfits. <laughs> so moving along on our double feature, second half, 1969's Easy Rider. So get ready, motherfuckers, for tonight's main attraction. <laughs> Start the movie. And wander through the forest Where the trees have leaves of prisms And break the light in colors That no one knows the names of This year, the judges of the Cannes Film Festival presented the award Best Film by a New Director to Easy Rider. It's the story of a man who went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. Easy Rider stars Peter Fonda. It's not every man that can live off the land, you know. You do your own thing in your own time. You should be proud. Also starring Dennis Hopper, the award-winning director of Easy Rider. Man, look, I gotta get out of here, man. We got things we want to do, man. Like, I, I, I gotta get out of here, man. Co-starring Jack Nicholson. I got this here, see, uh, scissor happy, beautify America thing going on around here. They're trying to make everybody look like Yule Brenner. You know, this used to be a hell of a good country. I don't understand what's going on with it. Everybody got chicken, man. That's what happened. Hey, you got a rope? Hey, mister, can you tell where a man might find a bed? I never really thought of myself as a freak, you know? But I love to freak. No, man. This is grass. You mean marijuana? Look like a bunch of refugees from a gorilla lovian. Oh, I just can't believe. What are they doing here? I don't never know, but I don't think they'll make the parish line. Hey, oh, look at them green. Hold on, Sam. We'll scare the hell out of them. They're not scared of you. They're scared of what you represent to them. Amen. Oh, we represent to them, man, as somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. I'm opening my last tall can here. <laughs> Talk about polar opposites of a film. Holy shit. One, it's in color. This movie's an absolute fucking trip, dude. Yeah. It's a movie that I've always heard about. My dad's a big fan of Easy Rider. He was always trying to get me to watch it, but we never did watch it. I'm so glad that I watched it. I thought it was a really good film. But let's get into it. You know I smoked a lot of grass. Oh, Lord, I popped a lot of pills. 
So Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, you know, they're of the same mind, if you will. It's also just part of a whole movement of actors that were very prominently hippies, almost. You know, just free love, you know, just whatever. You can lump Michael Douglas in this group. You can lump Jack Nicholson into this group. The ones that got really big in the 70s. The Seth Rogans of the 60s, you know. (laughs) Just free minds. They were just fun-loving cats. And they were also actors that were kind of method, but they weren't conservative in that way. They were very much liberal. They ended up finding their audience across the decade of the 60s. Free love. Just mug down anytime you want. Just, hey, what's up? It's Jack Nicholson. Just just get it on. Why don't they reveal themselves to us is because if they did, it would cause a general panic. What I noticed, because me and you both haven't seen this movie, which is surprising. If you are a movie guy, it's so iconic. For yeah. forcing this movie, I couldn't have told you much of the premise, but I could have told yeah. you plenty of details like what Fonda's helmet and his bike, the choppers, the look. You know, mm-hmm. Hopper's got the headband. He looks way crazy. Um, Jack Nicholson is amazing in this, and I, I've heard that. But why have I not wanted to watch it? I don't know. I just don't think because, like I said, the 60s just don't appeal to me very much. It's right. an absolute time capsule of a movie because I'm watching mm-hmm. it for the first time in 2022. Thank God I watched it at 38 because if I watched it at 18, I'd mm-hmm. have been like, this is fucking stupid. Like, get to the point or do something. <laughs> very groovy, George. Thank you. Very groovy. Very groovy. See there? I bet nobody ever said that to you. Just that not having patience or not knowing some struggles in life or just, yeah. I mean, I just think if you watched it as a kid in 1969, that's why it made so much money. You know, I'm a budget guy. This thing made $60 million on a $400,000 budget. Money! spent a million dollars on the music after so they spent almost three times amount just on the music because the music in this movie is definitely a character it is part of the dna and one of the things that i really love about the movie is that it begins from the viewpoint of the main character it's not the audience watching them do this thing another person that's like judging them because the opening scene is a drug deal yeah that's the very first scene of the movie it, it, Vida. <laughs> yeah. they do this huge drug deal and they get this fat wad of cash and they're going from pretty much la down to new orleans and it's just this epic road trip of these two chopper harley fucking hippie guys that do drugs the whole movie it's unique in itself let alone for the time i'm going down to mardi gras i'm gonna get me a mardi gras queen Wow, Marty, man, that's going to be the weirdest, man, you know? You know what we ought to do, man? First thing, go and get us a groovy dinner. Yeah, break out some of that cash, man. They go across the border, they get their money exchanged back into American dollars from selling the cocaine to, I don't know if you knew this, but the guy who buys the cocaine from them is Phil Spector, mm-hmm. the infamous, you know, music the infamous, producer. Yeah, I, did. I saw him in the credits. Dude, what? He was in this? That's crazy. Yeah. In 2003, 40-year-old Lana Clarkson was found dead inside Spector's Southern California mansion. His defense argued the expiring actress shot herself, claiming she kissed the gun before it went off. But after one mistrial, Spector was convicted in 2009 of second-degree murder. He was a lot younger then. <laughs> right, and have all that crazy hair every day yeah. in court. They got some money, they got their motorcycles, they have their freedom, which is a fun little theme that both movies kind of deal with trying to continue to be free. Yep. So, the Born to be Wild intro is fucking epic. Like, 
that's when I knew the music was going to be good but when you start out with, you know, Bon Jovi. Traveling through the U.S. countryside. I mean, that's a lot of the first half of this movie. It's just, there's no dialogue. It's crazy. That's what I kind of like about the movie is that if you know the terrain of the United States, getting out of California, going to Nevada and Arizona and New Mexico and all that, it's just yeah. desert land. But I think that's what they were kind of showing was like the, you know, the communes in the very beginning, lonely roads, very dry kind of stuff. But the commune was their first stop after they picked up that hitchhiker. They spend, you know, the day at the commune and trying to spit some game at some ladies, you know. But during that time, the guy that they give a ride to, he ends up giving them a few hits of acid. He says, you know, just save this for the perfect moment. They eventually go and hang out with these two chicks. They have some fun, you know, very, very hippie stuff. And then they drop them off and they continue on their way to New Orleans. Hopper's obviously directing this and, and it's so nonlinear and he's doing it on purpose, like obviously, but it's so organic. You're experiencing it with them. First half kind of blew me away. I'm just like, there's no information given here. So I had to like really pay attention to this one. This was one of those ones where I went, ah, fuck. Like I got to like lean forward. This thing's a fucking mind trip. <laughs> Let's go. Like it's very cathartic. The first yeah. half, there's no judgment in the movie. You're just viewing these two dudes live their life. There's no commentary from the yeah. filmmaker about what that's supposed to look like or whatever in the first half. The cinematography is great. Oh, just it, the constantly moving forward. I love totally. that. It's literally like a hippie directed and wrote it. Not a lot of dialogue. And if it is, it's talking about the aliens. They've got bases all over the world now, you know. They've been coming here ever since 1946 when the scientists first started bouncing radar beams off of the moon. And they have been living and working among us in vast quantities ever since. The government knows all about them. If you haven't smoked weed and talked about UFOs, I, I highly recommend it. And watching it as a person of my age in this time, it doesn't seem that far-fetched. It doesn't seem that <laughs> taboo. But thinking about the audience in 69, I mean, people just freely smoking weed the entire yeah. time. That had to be a jolt of the system. Like, cover and your eyes, that, kids. Uh, supposedly, a lot of it's actual drug use, which doesn't bother me one bit. I think it adds to the richness of this film. Do this instead. Oh, no thanks. I got some uh, store-bought right over here in my home. No, man. This is grass. You mean marijuana? Yeah. Lord have mercy. Is that what that is? It's got right. a lot going on. It's like that perfect time capsule movie. It came out at the perfect moment. I dare say it was like Matrix level. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, how did I not even think of that reference? That's perfect reference, dude. It's It's absolutely perfect. You're right. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. And they're 30 years apart. Yeah. The Matrix is the easy rider of the 90s. Like It's all high tech and it's just throwing it at you. And nobody's ever seen that before yeah. in, in no. film. Especially those cutaways that would like... Mm -hmm. Take a few seconds to go back yeah. and forth. Hopper, he didn't do a lot. He did Colors in 88. He did a few other things, but I think he's just as good director as he is actor. I think he really enjoyed acting more than directing is why he did a little bit more of the acting, you know? Well, there's actually a great story about that. When this movie came out, I mean, it was obviously a cultural hit. The youth loved it. The critics loved it. All these hippie actors started getting a name for themselves, and it was because of this movie. It almost won the Palm d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. That's how impactful it was. After Easy Rider, he got an opportunity 
to make another film. It was a movie called The Last Movie. And it was yeah. a movie that went way over budget. He got the offer to make the movie, right? And, you know, kind of like whenever the Coens made Fargo. Mm-hmm. And then the studio was like, whatever you want to make next. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's your yeah. Choice, you know? Uh, and then they made Big Lebowski. That rug really tied the room together, did it not? Fucking A. This guy peed on it. Donnie? Please. The studio believed in him to make another type of Easy Rider film. He just takes this huge left turn and he goes so incredibly deep with his hippie shit. It's a freaking mess of a movie. And the studio didn't like it. When it was released, nobody liked it. He ended up making a lot of enemies in Hollywood because of it. We watched Hearts of Darkness. And he was talking about how he was so glad to be hired for something. The reason was because this movie, the last movie, he cost a lot of people a lot of money for his vision or whatever. I mean, the hippies had a little bit of a come up, but ultimately the studios were still ran by the suits. Oh, yeah. Oh, come on. You probably got the cash out in your car, trust fund baby, <laughs> not just to pony it up. Stop calling me trust fund baby, you fucking orangutan. Come on, Guys, come on. this is getting us nowhere. Yeah, come on, we got a budget here. Come hey, on. senior and junior suits, let the creative people talk to the money people. Now, my line producer has done a budget okay and it's a budget that nobody else on the planet fucking earth could do to make this movie but it is the bare minimum you understand that it cannot be done for less and and who's your line producer where's this budget i'm my fucking line producer trust fund baby he had full creative control and so that's the movie he made so easy rider kind of made slash hurt his career i wrote my favorite hoppers it's like apocalypse now speed water world true romance texas chainsaw 2 bam in that order <laughs> texas chainsaw 2 <laughs> make the list Same. so ridiculous in that i love it help me beat this stranger that walks beside me it takes away my strength lord you show me the end show me what i fear so i don't fear it no more But Colors of 88 was very racially impactful. I mean, I didn't realize he did Chasers. That's funny. I saw Chasers and I was like, man, I hope Charlie remembers that one. Remember, she was the hottest babe of that time. She did um, Under Siege. She was the cake girl in Under Siege. Good Lord. So who are you? Are you, you like some special forces guy or something? I'm just a cook. A cook? Oh my God, we're going to die. Peter Fonda. <laughs> the only thing I know Peter Fonda from is like Escape from L.A. And it's funny. Ghost it's Rider. Funny. He was so far out of the realm of whatever I was watching. We haven't talked about Fonda. This is like Hollywood royalty. Peter Fonda is the son of Henry Fonda. Yeah, yeah. You know, back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, he was like the biggest name. He was the star of Grapes of Wrath, 12 Angry Men. Where did you get it? I went out walking for a couple of hours last night. I walked through the boys' neighborhood. I bought that in a little pawn shop just two blocks from the boys' house. It cost six dollars. It's against the law to buy or sell switchblade knives. That's right, I broke the law. Very well esteemed by everybody. Everyone. It's very much like a Hank Williams, Hank Williams Jr. type of situation. Mm-hmm. Where Hank is very conservative, you know, always has a suit, makes very down-the-middle country music, but then his son just makes outlaw country. The preacher man says it's the end of time And the Mississippi River, she's a gold grind There's a definite generational gap And so all these old heads 
who are seeing Henry Fonda's son smoke a joint, that's taboo as well. So the first half of the movie is just them traveling and then meeting a couple of people. One of the scenes that was kind of noticeable was that they were just trying to get a room at a motel. These innkeepers would just deny them. They would just say, yeah, we're all full up, but they're not. They just don't want to take in their kind. You had a long beard. You didn't have a short and tight haircut or you didn't fit the bill clothes wise. People were like, get the fuck out of here. It's so term, termisculate. Or, wait, no, wait. Tumultuous. Tumultuous. God damn it. I'm trying to use big words, Charlie, in these. <laughs> it's so crazy in the 60s how much discrimination there was. You know, you could be a hippie and get discriminated. You could come back from a war as a fucking purple heart badass and, and get literally pissed on. Like, man, this movie was a cultural, iconic movie to come out of 1969. And there's still shit going on similar to that today, which sucks. Well, I mean, think about this. I picked up on this watching the movie. Like, it shows it from the main character's eyes Mm -hmm. the entire time. And the way the story is told and how the story is, you could replace the bikers with a couple of black guys. And the story would still be the same. And the story would still be pretty factual based on the discrimination. You know, I thought at first that bunch over there, the mothers had maybe been frightened by a bunch of gorillas. But now I think they were caught. Oh, one of them's Ali Oop, I think. Some of the beads on her. Well, one of them, darn sure, is not Ula. Look like a bunch of refugees from a gorilla love in. A gorilla couldn't love that. <laughs> Knock at a mother. Literally, every little redneck they run into is like the worst person. They hate They're, bikers. Every little place they go to and every little thing they run into is evil the most anti-hero that you could imagine of the time. That was the appeal. It's like, they do what they want. They don't clock in for wages. Like the misfits, these cowboys. Mm-hmm. It's cool that you pick both of these movies because they tie in and that, that reference completely. Halfway through the movie, they find themselves in some small town parade, but then they get locked up in jail. <laughs> this uh, is the best part of the movie. For parading without a permit. And while they're in lockup, they meet George Hansen, yeah. and he's played by Jack Nicholson. All right now, George, what are you going to do now? I mean, you promise these people now. You promise these people, and you promise these people. And they believe you, George. Hey! Hey, man, would you mind? Just woke my friend up. Oh. And this is like such early Jack Nicholson. Oh, he's got so much hair. I love it. <laughs> and the character he's playing is this small town lawyer who's also just a massive alcoholic and motorcycle enthusiast. He sees that life. He sees bikers and how they are. And he kind of is jealous of that lifestyle. Yeah. He remarks that he wouldn't mind riding with him. And so Fonda is like, hey, you got a helmet? And so <laughs> he goes and gets his old football helmet and he uses that. And then they just hit the road. Um, I've always loved, though, the scene where he gets out of the jail and he takes the whiskey shot. Here's the first of the day, fellas. To old D.H. Lawrence. Yeah! Nick, Nick, Nick. Indians. You know, I don't know what that's about. What's the Indians line? I didn't get that reference. Like, I didn't understand. <laughs> I don't get it either. It was probably just Jack being Jack. Talk about having a beer with a guy. Jack Nicholson all fucking day. Absolutely. He would trump Defoe. <laughs> like, come on. I know he's an older school guy, older generation guy. He's so fucking unique. I love him. But no, and, uh, this is where the movie finally has something to chew on. I mean, he's fucking wasted as hell. He gets him out of jail. He's a breath of fresh air is what I wrote. Seeing as how they can't find any lodging anywhere, a lot of times they end up just camping. The adverse of the road scenes 
There's also the campfire scenes. They talk about some crazy shit, the world or what they're going to do, the past, you know, all these kinds of things get brought up in these conversations around the campfire. And then once Jack Nicholson gets infused into it, he brings a little bit more comedy into it. And I think that he represents kind of like the square. He's like the lamoid that is trying to learn this lifestyle and be cool and stuff like that. Like he never even smoked weed. As soon as he takes a couple hits, he starts talking about aliens. And My favorite scene. Yeah. And this is 1969. So I'm like, dude, none of us are original. Everyone thinks they did it first. <laughs> nope. Jack Nicholson was smoking joints and talking about UFOs way before we thought it was cool. Our whole solar system could be like one tiny atom in the fingernail of some other giant being. Oh, this is too much. That means that one tiny atom in my fingernail could be, could be one little tiny universe. Could I buy some pot from you? And speaking of which, I mean, you could say that Dennis Hopper is like the blueprint for any stoner character. Oh, yeah. He's like, hey, man, he's the Chong. He's the yeah, villain Ted. Yeah. I'm sure Cheech and Chong took some shit from Dennis Hopper out of Easy Rider all day. Absolutely. And so uh, I guess the next big scene in the movie is when they arrive at the restaurant. Yeah, the diner scene. Basically, the vibe of the whole scene is that they walk in, they sit down, and they're automatically being discriminated against. The older people are just looking at them with disgust. But the adverse of this... I can't believe they're here. What are they doing here? I don't know. No, we can't. I think they'll be full. All the young girls are completely infatuated. They're yeah. like, oh my God, like, look at these guys. They're the bad boys. Yeah. They're the ones that don't give a fuck. They must be tough, right? Or they're going to come into our fucking diner and rock their long hair and all that shit. That has Seriously. to be a turn on. Yeah. Kind of like Hopper's commentary on one of the reasons why the old heads hate the bikers. Mm -hmm. They're able to make those moves that the other guys couldn't, you know, and so they're kind of jealous. Their ability to just attract women they end up not eating anything they end up just getting up and walking out of the restaurant because of just how much hate is being spewed at them they'll find a campground they lay down for the night and then the same guys from the restaurant they find them in the woods and they beat jack nicholson's character to death <laughs> It's super dark, man. Like, yeah. that made me sad as fuck. I get what it's trying to do. It's psychedelic, and it's the road trip journeyman's lifestyle movie. But it made me so sad that the guy that they took in who was, like, new to the game and so enthusiastic and funny and charismatic gets his fucking head beat in while he's asleep. Just to do it in the sleep like that just really just made me feel sick to my stomach. I was like, man, that's fucked up. You don't see a lot of what's going on. It's just pure cold-blooded murder. That level of hatred is just yeah. so astounding. That was the most profound scene in the movie. I went from like, all right, man, because I don't know what's going to happen. They're going to have some fucking fun. And then it was just like, nope, this is real. This is life. They may be going through a drug journey, but they're going through like really dangerous parts of the United States at the time. And their ultimate goal is still out there to reach. And after George gets murdered, they just keep on moving. The immediate next scene is them in New Orleans. Yeah. So they find their way to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. I guess they go to you know, a brothel or you know, a whorehouse or whatever. And they get a couple of girls. What's the matter? Don't you like me? What? 
Well, you paid for me, right? Oh. Well, that was, um, that was for my friend. Oh, I don't, uh... Why don't I buy you a drink? I don't drink. I've got an idea. Let's go outside. Just have the night, you know, in Mardi Gras. Finally made it, yeah. The finish line for their trip, so they're celebrating. They pop some serious drugs, and this is the infamous scene where Fonda's actually fucked up in, you know, Bourbon Street. I just thought the idea of Mardi Gras in the 60s would be cool to experience. So they experienced Mardi Gras. They did what they came to do, and then the morning comes, and they find themselves at, you know, the cemetery, the the famous Louisiana cemetery that all the movies go to. Mm -hmm. It's such it's such a signature cemetery. It's there with Hopper and Fonda and the two girls that they got that he decides to break open the acid. And all four of them have this huge acid trip. And I think this is the highlight of the movie. No, listen to me, listen to me. I want you to be beautiful. I want you to be beautiful. No. No, me. I know. I mean, just this editing sequence that they do. And it's out of sequence, and it's like reenacting an acid trip. The repetition, you know, the constant scary visuals, the quick cuts, the Bible scripture in the background, you know, it's kind of fucking with their head. Super impressive. I, I think that's what makes the movie for me is that sequence. I'm sure kids going into that movie like came out just like, oh my god, they had never made anything like that before. I think that's what was the hit, that extra kick that gave it that huge amount of money. This was a statement. That acid trip scene, yeah. man. Yeah. You were like, fuck the government, fuck the war all that that's why it made as much money as it did uh, after their acid trip they have one more night in the campground and then they just hit the road again just heading back to california while they're on their way back a couple of dumbass rednecks they're in their truck they already got a gun rack in their truck mm-hmm. they see these two bikers and they want to scare them point a gun at him but he sees that these bikers aren't getting scared at the sight of this gun dennis hopper's like flipping him off And so this guy, he hits the trigger and he connects with Hopper, knocks him off of his motorcycle. He's still alive, but in so much pain. Fonda pulls over, tries to cover him up, but the guy's going to die. The guy shot a 12-gauge from a foot away. Of course, Fonda turns around and tries to catch up. And then the truck itself turns around, going towards the motorcycle. Peter Fonda tries to pass him. When he does, he gets the other barrel. The motorcycle itself catches on fire. All that money in their gas tank is gone. This aerial shot of the truck driving away, the motorcycle on fire, you can still see Dennis Hopper in the very top of the screen just dying. Yep. And it just pans out, this huge crane shot. And then the credits fucking roll. Yeah. The river flows, it flows to the sea. Wherever that river goes, that's where I want to be. That's the end of the movie. It's so bleak, man. Poignant and to the point and just like, yep, this is what I was going to make and we don't like it. It's a message film. It's a time capsule. It's of its time, but I'm glad I caught it later in age and appreciated what they were doing. So uh, we got to rate this thing, Ryland. What would you give Easy Rider? Out of 10 stars. It's the counterculture classic. I mean, it's so reflective of the time. 
The soundtrack is sick. I've always been a big, huge Hopper fan. I think this is a solid, like, 7.7. It's not a masterpiece. There's so many people that think, oh, my God, this is a 10. This is this and that. And No, it has tons of flaws. It has tons of weird things going on. And it's not very trimmed and not very perfect. But I understand what this movie is. But at the same time, I didn't live in that era. It doesn't affect me. I can only look at it retroactively. I wasn't in the shit whenever this movie came out. I wasn't part of that voice that was trying to be heard. I wasn't even born yet. That automatically gives it a couple of hits, in my opinion. I just can't relate. Just me personally. I appreciate the execution of the film itself. Very natural looking the entire time. As little as they had to say, they still got across what they were trying to get across, which was promoting freedom and promoting this lifestyle that not a whole lot of people have seen at that point. Putting it on display and and then also seeing how they view the people that judge them. They're looked at as monsters, you know, scumbags or whatever. (laughs) So ultimately, I would give this movie a 7.4 out of 10. I probably will watch it again. At some point, I would be reaching if I said that this impacted me the way it did. And so that was our double feature, man. I love this idea. It's so hard for me to come up with ideas for the show. But I don't want our podcast to just be, you know, nothing but 80s and 90s Dubro movies, you know, like my original idea, which I don't have many. So I'm going to take all the credit. Cool idea just to go, you know what? We're doing 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Now, this was a lot of reading, a lot of thinking about that era and that time. So may not have been our most charismatic show, but hey, we did it and we're only going to get better. So I love to layer our shit because when I tell somebody about our show, that's a stranger. I go, we have 60 something episodes. Just look through one of them that, that you appeal to. There's something for everyone. But yeah, guys, that's our double feature. We got a few more ideas in the hopper, but that's our show for the week, guys. And so for Rylan Johnson, my name is Charlie Thompson. And we have been spitting the real shit. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. Peace out, guys. The ending's so sad. God. <laughs> Son of a bitch, Johnson. <laughs> I'm waking up at the start of the end of the world. But it's feeling just like every other morning before. Now I wonder what my life is going to mean if it's gone. The cars are moving like a half a mile an hour. And I started staring at the passengers and waving goodbye. Can you tell me what was ever really special about me? All this time But I believe the world Is burning to the ground
it's over for me and it's over for you Let's go, go, baby, it's all gone There's no one on the corner and there's no one at home And it was cool, cool, it was just all cool Now it's over for me and it's over for you